Stand. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Bill and Mary Lee. Good morning, everyone. How's it going today? Good. All right. We are starting this new series, People of Truth. And uh, this is part of our overall second half of 2019 series, looking at truth. First half of 2019, looking at grace. And uh, I'm excited to kick this series off and to think about uh, what it means to be people of truth, specifically as it relates to thinking, as it relates to thinking. So uh, over the next six weeks, we're going to be thinking about and looking at what does it look like to be people of truth in our thoughts, in our emotions, and in our actions. In our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. And all three of those are interconnected, right? They all influence each other. Our thoughts influence our actions, our emotions, all tied together. So what we're going to do over the next uh, six Sundays is we're going to look at what does it mean to be people of truth in each of these three areas. So two weeks on thinking, uh, two weeks on emotions, two weeks on actions. And so I get to kick it off uh, this morning with you and uh, specifically looking at what does it mean to be people of truth as it relates to our thoughts or thinking. And uh, start this morning, Bill has had you work your imaginations as part of worship. That's great. I want to also have you work your imaginations. And I want you to envision a tree. I want you to envision a tree, so just take a moment and picture a tree, and I don't want you to picture the beautiful Michigan trees we have right now. I want you to, first of all, picture a desert, so it's all dry and dusty, and I want you just to picture that scenery, and then, and then in the middle of that desert, you see something green, and you get closer, and you realize it's a tree, and that tree is in the middle of this desert, there's all these dust and dirt and rocks, it's hot, it's dry, and yet there is a tree right in this desert. That's very unusual. And as you get closer and you see that tree, you see that it's actually green because it's right by a river. So in the midst of all this dryness, this barrenness, there is this tree that is planted by a river. Well, that is actually the opening to the book of Psalms. And it pictures the way of wisdom. If you need a picture of what wisdom looks like, wisdom looks like being a green tree in the middle of a barren wilderness. It means when you live in a culture and a society that is shaped by futility and wrong thinking, you actually can live a healthy, fruitful, wise life. It's actually a really, really incredible picture. The Bible talks about trees quite a lot, actually. This is one of the key ways in which the Bible talks about wisdom, what it means to live a wise life. Uh, Jesus talked about a tree in relation to how people live, right? He said, how do you know if somebody basically is good or bad? Well, you know it by the fruit of their life. You know it by their actions. Also, using the image of a tree. So, the Bible's very, very interested in having us live a wise life. Very interested in having us think correctly and think accordant, in accordance with truth. And we need this in our, in our culture today, in our, in our lives today, right? Uh, we live in an age of uh, alternative facts 
and fake news, and those are just two of the most recent terms we've come, we've come up with, but we've always lived with uh, ambiguity. We've always lived with not always, with hearing lots and lots of different things, and with people saying, this is true, and this is true, and they're completely opposite from each other, yeah. and we need to know discernment, and we need to know what it means to live as people of truth. Yeah. I want to point you in the direction of the Apostle Paul, to start with this morning as we frame up our message, and he, uh, at least three times in Scripture, has this really interesting idea where he shares with us something about this thing he calls the mind of Christ. In Romans 15, he says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Attitude of mind, the same as Christ. Interesting. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And also, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, very clearly, we as believers have the mind of Christ. So at least three times in the New Testament, Paul talks about having our mindset be the same as Christ, or that we have the mind of Christ as Christians. We often think uh, about the things that Jesus did, his actions. Uh, We often talk about the things Jesus said, But how many of you have actually paused to think about, I wonder what Jesus thought about. What went through Jesus' mind? What ways did Jesus think about himself and about the world? And that's actually what I want us to spend our time thinking about this morning and reflecting on. What ways did Jesus think? If we're supposed to have the mind of Christ, we should probably know something about the mind of Christ and and how he thought and what he thought about One thing that's really interesting to think about right away is uh, Jesus' childhood. So, as I'm sure any of you that are grown up past your childhood realize that you're heavily influenced by your childhood patterns of thinking, right? Some of you might be trying to escape your childhood patterns of thinking, but they still shape us, right? How we're raised uh, shapes us in in amazing ways. Uh, So how was Jesus raised? Well, Jesus was raised in a small town a little backwater, not anywhere significant. Jesus was raised as a Jew under a time of Roman Empire occupation. So Jesus was not used to living anywhere important, and he was not raised anywhere that was in control of anything. Jesus lived as part of a family. He had a mother and father, Mary and Joseph. We know the story from our Christmas time that's coming up. Uh, We also know that he had brothers and sisters, and he was the oldest, but he was also different, right? Because, you know, people in his uh, small time would have likely said, yeah, that's Jesus. Remember the one with the story of the angel? People might have looked at Jesus a little different when he was growing up as part of his family. Uh, Jesus also grew up as the son of Joseph. And what did Joseph do? He was a carpenter or a laborer. And so Jesus would have grown up knowing what it was to put in a hard day's work. He would have known what it was to think about a project from start to finish. He would have thought about the right materials for the right job. He would have thought about all of these things as part of his everyday life. He would have also thought about the law of Moses and the Old Testament. He would have been raised as a faithful Jew to go to festivals. And so all of this patterned and shaped the ways that he thought about the world. But just like the uh, gospel stories that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're actually going to spend most of our time looking at what we call his earthly ministry. 
This is the three-year period of Jesus' life, at the end of his life, where he uh, ministers, where he is um, teaching and preaching. And we're going to look at some things from that period of his life. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask two questions. The first one is, what did Jesus think about? What did Jesus think about? And I'm going to share four things that, that help summarize what Jesus thought about. And then we'll switch to consider, in what ways did Jesus think? So what did he think about? And then what were the patterns of his thinking? Because this will help us to understand what the mind of Christ is to help us know what it's like to be people of truth. So I want to share uh, four summaries in each of these areas, and it'll, they'll come pretty quick. So let's think about the first one. What did Jesus think about? It's clear from the Gospels that Jesus thought about God's will. Jesus thought about God's will. This actually was really instructive for Jesus. We see, this, he see, him, we see him talk about this quite a bit, so he must have thought about it quite a lot. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 4, or we're told in John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, don't you believe I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? Words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus was very clear at multiple points in the Gospels. He's not doing things on his own. He's doing them because he's following the will of God the Father. We see a great example of this in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, where Jesus is in earnest prayer. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is about to go to the crucifixion, and uh, he is praying that prayer that is quite well known in the Gospels. It says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus sought out the will of God and submitted his life to it. This is an example of the ways in which Jesus aligns his thinking with the will of God the Father. In your life, how are you discerning the will of God? Are you taking time to ask God for direction? Like Christ, are you in prayer about the shape and direction your life should take and how you can follow God's will. Uh, Jesus also, as a result of being passionate about following God's will, was very aware of his own mission and his own place in the world. Now, obviously, Jesus had a very unique mission and place in the world as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Lord. But Jesus, because he wanted to follow the will of the Father, needed to learn and understand and know about his particular mission and his particular role. Jesus needed to know what it was to live out his role as the Messiah. Jesus needed to know what it was to fulfill his particular mission. And guess what? He would have had to think about that. He would have had to think it through. What does it mean in practice to be the Messiah? What does it mean to live faithfully before God? In Luke chapter 4, there's a famous scene where, in, in the Gospels where Jesus actually gives us a sneak peek. He introduces his mandate or his mission Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, Jesus was very clear what his mission was, but by this point, he had had over 30 years of his life to think about it, to discern it. 
to know what it was to follow God's will for his life. Uh, in your life, are you aware of the particular mission and place God has called you to in the world? Are you taking time to ask God for direction? Are you becoming more aware of your own gifts, your own talents, and the ways in which God has shaped you and the ways in which God has placed you? Uh, Jesus thought about others. Jesus thought about others. Jesus did not live a self-centered life. Now, Jesus did take care to have habits and patterns and disciplines that ensured he lived a perfectly holy and righteous life. But that perfectly holy and righteous life oriented his life around serving others. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it's written, for, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I bet Jesus thought a lot about what that would entail. Jesus would have to think day by day, what does it mean for me to serve? What does it mean for me to give my life for others? One practical example we see of this is in John chapter 13. Jesus is with his closest followers, his disciples. And uh, as they come in to the room where they're meeting, um, he grabs a bowl of water and he grabs a towel and he begins to wash their feet. Jesus, in this, by doing this, takes the literal role of a servant who would wash people's feet as they came into a home, wash the dust off their feet as a way to clean them, but also a, a way to refresh them as they come in from the heat of the day into the house. And this was the job of a servant. And what's the disciples' reaction? They have two, reaction, two thought processes in their mind. The first is it makes them terribly uncomfortable. They do not want Jesus washing their feet because it flips the roles that they are used to socially. These men have committed their lives to following Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher. What he says goes. What he says and what he does is what they are to do. They follow him. He does not wash their feet. So socially, this is a very awkward situation. They, they do not want it to happen. They're embarrassed that this is happening. Jesus, you are crazy to do this. Actually, the bigger problem for the disciples is that because Jesus was the rabbi and he was washing their feet, guess what it meant for them? They had to follow his example. And in their humanity, they probably did not want to know from Jesus' example that they likewise would have to wash feet, that they likewise would have to be the least, that they would have to be the servant. That's a difficult life lesson, but... In your life, how are you serving others? Are you taking time to ask God for direction in the ways that you can serve others? Are you aware enough of the needs in our community so that you know how to serve? Uh, the kingdom. Jesus must have thought about the kingdom a lot because he talks about it all the time. The kingdom of God was what Jesus came to proclaim. He says as much Luke chapter 4. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that's why I was sent. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus was traveling from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus actually sends his closest followers, the 12. He gets them together. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. 
This kingdom of God is this completely different reality that Jesus was bringing into the world. That kingdom of God that is both here and is yet to fully come. And the kingdom of God is a completely different way of relating to each other, relating to God, and relating to ourselves. This kingdom of God completely takes all of the patterns and the systems of the world as we know them, and it turns them on their head, it turns them inside out. It's just a completely different world that we live in. And Jesus was bringing that world. Jesus thought about that world. And actually, most of the things that happen in the Gospels are the place where the kingdom of heaven meets the kingdom of earth, and there's friction. How many times did Jesus heal someone or do something that we would say is good, and somebody was upset about it? It's the clash of two kingdoms happening in real time. Because the kingdom of heaven challenges the existing kingdoms of the earth. So in your life, how much do you know about the kingdom? Have you read scripture to understand the reality of the kingdom? And are you open to the kingdom operating in our day? So that's what Jesus thought about. Uh, In what ways did Jesus think? What actually shaped his mindset? Let's think about that for a second. So we know what he thought about. In what ways did he think? Well, the first thing to note is that his thinking was informed by Scripture. His thinking was informed by Scripture. Uh, One clear example of this is when Jesus first uh, starts his ministry. He's baptized, then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He, prayer and fasting, he's really hungry, and the enemy comes to tempt him. And what's Jesus' response? Three times he quotes Scripture in response. What does that mean? It means Jesus knew Scripture and he knew how to use it. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and Psalm 91 in response to the specific temptations of the enemy. Um, In your life, how are you becoming more familiar with Scripture? Um, Are you able to think about the ways in which the Bible shapes your life, shapes your thinking? And I'm not just talking about, um, do you know the stories of the Bible? Those are important to know about. It's important to know about Moses and Abraham and David and Goliath and Solomon and Jesus and Paul. It's important to know all of those, yes. But the more you read scripture, the more it actually influences how you think and how you see the world. It shapes you and and it shapes your pattern of thinking, so your pattern of thinking becomes more biblically informed over time. In what way are you connecting with scripture on that level? Um, Jesus thought in ways that really sought to connect the truth of the kingdom of God with people in their everyday life and experience. So on the one hand, you have the kingdom of heaven, which is this, like I've described, is this completely different reality. The challenge with describing a completely different reality is that it's a different reality. And you have to find ways to bridge the gap between that reality and what people know and experience in their everyday. So what did Jesus do? We see this as Jesus taught in parables. Jesus would take the very, very simple, earthly things, the texture of the earth, he would take images that people were completely familiar with, he would use those images to explain what the kingdom of God is like. In Matthew 13, you read that the kingdom of heaven is like 
a treasure hidden in a field. And someone finds it. And he's completely joyful. He sells everything he has so that he can buy the field. I think we can all imagine what a field looks like, what treasure looks like, and what it would mean to conduct a real estate transaction. The kingdom of heaven is like a a pearl of great value that you sell everything else you have to get that one thing that's of great value. The message of God, hearing God's word, is like a seed that is scattered. And I guess most of us probably aren't farmers, uh, but you've maybe done some, uh, some planting, some seed sowing. Mm-hmm. And even us, many centuries removed from Jesus' words, we've, even us, we can get our heads around what it's like for a seed to fall into the soil. Right? We can picture a seed. We can picture soil. We know what it's like to have soil that's fertilized and, 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 and ready to receive a seed, and we know that seed is going to thrive in that soil. We can picture that. We also know what hard, packed, dry soil and dirt looks like. The type of dirt that you put a seed on top and it's just going to sit there and do nothing. Right? We can imagine this. We know what this looks like. That describes something of the kingdom. Jesus didn't really make it that complicated for people to understand the kingdom. He just looked around and he saw what people's everyday life was like. You might think Jesus just came up with all of this in the moment, and of course, he might have. But I'm also guessing that Jesus carefully observed the world around him. What were people's patterns of everyday life like? What did people do every day? And he started to think about, hmm, seed. What's seed like? How can I use the imagery of seeds being sown to explain something of the kingdom? So in your life, uh, can you clearly communicate the things of God to people who have no idea what he's like? Uh, What images do you use? What things are around you in your everyday life? What experiences could you use to help explain what God is like in ways that people are actually going to understand? Jesus thought about individuals. He also thought about systems. So Jesus, uh, there's lots of examples where Jesus met with or talked with an individual. And he did it in a way where where their life was totally changed. He heals a centurion's servant. He raises a widow's son back to life. Those are both in Luke 7. Jesus meets people individually. And often that's what we think about when we meet Jesus. That Jesus heals us individually. He delivers us. He saves us. And that's, that's true. However, Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus is also very interested in the systems that shape people's lives and often oppress people's lives. In John chapter 2, So John chapter 1, it's great, right? In the beginning was the word, right? It's like real lofty language. It's so great. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus goes into the temple, makes some cords, and turns some tables over. Wow, that's a really different pattern of Jesus than we've just gotten in John chapter 1. 
So what is Jesus doing when he goes into the temple? He's not engaging with any individual. He's challenging the system. And what system was he challenging? He's challenging the religious system that was making it harder for people to meet with God instead of easier to meet with God. The system that was putting a barrier between people and God. And Jesus literally goes in to overturn that system. Sometimes Jesus um, challenges, meets an individual and challenges the system all in the same event. So think about the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. And she's brought before Jesus and all these men are around her and they basically put her in front of Jesus and of course it's a trap and they say, you know, well, what do you think about this, Jesus? And what does Jesus do? Starts writing in the, in the ground. What does he write? We don't know. But we do know the result of what he wrote is that people, one by one, started to drift away started to leave the scene. And eventually it's Jesus and the woman. And what does he say to her? Where'd everyone go? Where are your accusers? And then he basically tells her to sin no more. And off she goes. What does Jesus do? Wow, what incredible grace that he offers to that woman. But he also challenges the system, right? Uh, that woman wasn't committing adultery alone, but where was the man? So Jesus challenges the patriarchy of that society that brought the woman for judgment, but not the man. Jesus also makes it very clear that in the kingdom of heaven, sure, this woman was caught, but we all sin. Everyone sins. So the people that brought her to expose her shame and sin realized I'm in the same boat that she's in. A different reality to the kingdom. There's a story where Jesus heals a man and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, get really upset because they want to know, they're upset because he's healed, but they also really want to know, well, who sinned so that this man had this physical disability? That's, that's this world, this kingdom thinking. Who sinned? Was it the man or was it his parents? Jesus isn't even interested in that conversation. Because in the kingdom, that's just not a thing. Right. Completely different. So, in your life, how are you aware of the systemic realities we face in this world? The injustice that we see in the ways that it shapes us and the ways that it shapes others. Are you taking time to ask God for direction in the ways that you can help people that is both personal and individual, but also seeks to undermine systems that bring oppression? Looking back and looking ahead, Jesus was really aware that he was living out the Old Testament vision of what it was to be the Messiah. Jesus was really aware he was in a present moment that was based on what had come before him. But Jesus also looked ahead. And Jesus looked into the immediate future. He envisioned when his disciples would go into the, into the world and he tried, to, he tried to prepare them for that time when he would be ascended to heaven and they would go out as witnesses. Jesus also looked way ahead into the future to the final judgment. So Jesus was both aware of his 
lineage and his past, but also very aware of the future that he looked to with great hope because of the victory that he would bring in and the reality of that kingdom. You know, sometimes we get really, we picture time in different ways. Some of us are very in the moment. We have a hard time planning ahead. We just love to live in the moment. There are some of us, though, that mentally we live in the past, right? We just love to think back to the past. Oh, things were so great back then. Just love it. Brings you comfort to think way back. Uh, There are other people, though, who say, I don't want to think about the past. I really want to just set all of my hope in future. So I'm going to set all my hope in my next promotion, vacation, fill in the blank. And you just are so future-oriented, you don't ever reflect on the past, and you don't enjoy the moment. Jesus was somehow able to do all of it. He was so aware of his past. He knew, ultimately, where he was going, and he was able to live fully in the moment. So, how can we do that? How can we be more present for others in our lives? How can we draw from the past appropriately and also look to the future? This is really important because, you know, even if you get really enmeshed in the present, you can get discouraged really easily. You know, you can think, oh man, just everything seems to be so crazy all the time. And where is your, where's your compass, right? And Jesus was able to say, well, yeah, things are kind of crazy right now, but look to the past. Look at God's faithfulness and look at what all he's done. And also know that future hope is coming. And we need all of it to thrive in our thoughts as Christians. So we started this morning with the image of a tree. I want to close this morning with the image of another tree, and that is the cross. Now, actually, if you look back at all of these, they all find their center at the cross. Um, At the cross, Jesus was fully embracing and living out God's will. Jesus was fully living out his mission and his place in the world. Jesus was fully serving others by dying for them. And Jesus was bringing in the kingdom. Jesus going to the cross was informed by scripture. We actually know from the Old Testament roughly the type of death that Jesus would die. And Jesus also was quoting scripture even while he was on the cross as a way to make sense of it. Uh, Jesus found ways to connect truth using the language people understood. The cross is not neutral. If you were alive in the time of Jesus and you saw someone on the cross, that had profound meaning. It wasn't a neutral symbol. It wasn't religious. Uh, We've made it religious, but it actually was political. Uh, If you were on the cross, it meant you were a traitor, you were a criminal, you were an enemy, you were worthless, you were the lowest in society. It was actually also used by the Roman Empire as a way to warn others you do not want to end up in this position, so don't do anything out of line. Don't oppose the empire. If you do, you'll end up like this guy. Jesus actually took that form of communication and used it to bring in the reality of the kingdom of heaven. This is classic Jesus going against the systems, right? 
And what is this system all about? It's all about violence and oppression, right? What's the one tool empires have over anything else? Violence. And, and this was the clearest symbol of violence. We're going to put you on a cross. That's the power we have over you. And what does Jesus do? Is he says, okay, I can take your violence and I can overcome it. What's the scariest thing for empire and those that are in charge? If they use all their violence against you and you still come back. There's no other answer for that. You've used everything you have against this person. So when Jesus rises from the dead, why is it so disorienting to everyone? Well, we often think about the physical side, right? You should not be able to physically rise from the dead. But when you think about it in terms of systems, it completely destabilizes every system that's in place. Because you should not be able to receive violence and come back and offer peace. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, we actually still have a hard time with that because we're so shaped by the world. Um, the cross both looks back and looks forward. The cross deals with sin. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that was something that had to be dealt with and wasn't dealt with by the end of the Old Testament in a sufficient way, in an all-encompassing way. The cross does that, and the cross also is what gives us hope for the future. So this morning, as we think about having the mind of Christ, focusing on him as a means to pursue, pursue truth gives us a foundation. And there are ways that we can live this out in the Christian life. Patterns of discipleship, patterns that we can build into our life that help us further develop and grow in our understanding of the mind of Christ. How do we do this? In a big picture sense, and Paul gets into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we do this because we're enabled to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do this in your own strength, because you will fail quickly. <laughs> but using the strength of the Holy Spirit, asking for the strength and support of the Holy Spirit, allows you to enter into the depths of the mind of Christ. Let me pray for us this morning as we close. Father God, I thank you so much for each person who is here. I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for the chance to hear your word this morning, to reflect on your word this morning together. I thank you so much for the mind of Christ. I thank you so much for the patterns that we have thought through this morning of what Jesus thought about and the ways in which he thought. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the great victory that Christ has won for each one of us. Thank you so much that you strengthen us by your spirit to live out the mind of Christ so that our thoughts can be shaped by truth and our thoughts can be rooted and grounded in your wisdom. Pray you be with each one of us this week, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.